Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Before we get on with the interview with Stephen Pressfield, I should let you know about my latest book. It's called The Windsor Method, subtitled The Principles of Solo Training. And, well, I'll read you the formal blurb, which begins, The secret behind all great artists is how they practice. The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training, is the self-help book for people who want to add years to their life and life to their years. In this refreshingly straightforward and gentle guide, best-selling author and world-renowned historical swordsmanship instructor Dr. Guy Windsor lays out the fundamental principles behind personal development and excellence in any field. How? By establishing a solid foundation and a step-by-step approach to mechanics and training. This is The Windsor Method. Use it to guide your practice and elevate your skills. Now, obviously, I think it's quite a good book, but what do other people have to say about it? Well, Dr. Andrew Somio, who is an MD and he's the head coach of Seattle Eskrima. He's a master instructor in Latosa Eskrima, Lonin Longsword League senior instructor and competition coach. And I should also say he's a friend of mine. Well, I sent it to him and my friends are honest with me and this is what he says. It's a pleasure and a privilege to review Guy Windsor's work on solo practice. Working from vast personal experience, understanding of multiple traditions centuries old, and modern understanding of education, learning, and motivation, he has produced an extremely useful and approachable book on sustainable, healthy practice and its underpinnings. Starting from first principles, Guy takes you through the prerequisites for developing a practice, provides specifics to implement, then addresses barriers, all in a tone which invites and encourages. I wholeheartedly recommend this work to practitioners of any level. And if that doesn't make me blush, I don't know what would. So, the book is coming out on August the 5th, 2021, on all the usual retailers in paperback, hardback, large print editions, and the rest. But it is currently available right now as an ebook only at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. So, you can skip along and get yourself an ebook there if you wish. Now, without further ado, on with the show. I'm here today with Stephen Pressfield, author of The Legend of Bag of Vance, The Gates of Fire, The War of Art, and many other novels and nonfiction titles. His latest book is Man at Arms, and he has a YouTube channel in which he investigates the warrior archetype. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you, Guy. It's great to be here. Thanks for um, having me. You're, you're very welcome. Thanks for saying yes to the uh, weirdo sword person on the internet who contacted you through <laughs> your website. Um, so whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Los Angeles. Okay. So I think pretty much everybody listening knows where that is, thanks to Hollywood. Um, and of course, <laughs> Hollywood, is, is, that, is Hollywood why you ended up there? Uh, it is, actually. Like maybe, I think around 1980, I just, uh, after failing at three novels on the <laughs> East Coast, living in New York, I thought, you know, why don't I go and fail as a screenwriter? So I moved out here for the movies. 
Okay. You know, to try to write for the movies. So yeah, that's that's why I'm here. Okay. And, and I, I've had... never left. <laughs> well, if it's working, then why change it? Uh, okay. So the list of professions that you have you know, tried your hand at: um, advertising copywriter, school teacher, U.S. Marine, tr- tractor trailer driver, bartender, oil field roustabout. Um, and screenwriter. So how come you settled on novelist? Uh, well, my ambition from the very start, Guy, was to write novels. Oh, okay. And, uh, but, um, and uh, I tried to write one way too young. I didn't know what I was doing okay. at all. And it's, uh, it was a bit of an adult portion for me, a little more than I could handle. And my life sort of fell apart, you know. At that mm-hmm. point, I was like 23, 24 years old. And I wound up sort of on the road, you know, um, yeah. my marriage broke up, et cetera, et cetera. And those jobs were just jobs I, that I took just to keep body and soul together, you know, just sort of kicking around from one place to another until I finally sort of, uh, you know, reached the end of my rope and just decided I better stop running away from writing and maybe get out the typewriter and uh, try to do something. Okay, so how, how long a period are we talking about where you were running away from I the I think it was writer? like maybe six or seven years. Okay. Right, so, so you were in denial, shall we say, for that period. I was in denial. <laughs> I was running away from my destiny. Um, okay. And so, but then you, you got some measure of success in screenwriting. How, so how did you uh, I get, actually how did I didn't you... find any real success there either. You know, it <laughs> really? took me, uh, I, I was able to sort of make a living, but it actually took me, Guy, it took me like uh, from the time I first quit a job to write until the time mm-hmm. I had my first novel published, I think it was 28 years. So okay. it was not really an overnight success by any means. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really surprising me. Um, how, how common that sort of story is. It's like, yes, an overnight success. It only took 20 years. Yeah. And then, exactly. yeah, and then suddenly when you break out, it's like, oh, well, okay, this person just yeah, picked no up problem. a pen yeah. yesterday and wrote a book. Yeah. Um, I first came across your work when I read Gates of Fire about 20 years ago, something like that. And, you know, it was kind of magical for its, its immersion into Spartan life. And you really get the feeling like, you know, you you were actually there seeing the actual Spartans doing their thing, which is, which was great. So um, I'm not sure if I really want to ask the question because it's not always a good idea to look behind the curtain. (laughs) How how much, how much of that book was actually based on research and how much did you Um, just make up? uh, That's a, that's a great question. In fact, I, we, you and I were just talking earlier, a little bit we were recording about how, about a gentleman named Chip Armstrong, Mm-hmm. who is a swordsmaster, Japanese swordsmaster, and a hopologist, a study of the, the science of aggression, I guess it is. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to visit him in Sedona, Arizona. He's a friend of a friend. And we spent a couple of days together because I, ha- I really had no idea what is a hoplite battle like, you know? And so, nobody does. Nobody knows what it's like, right? So Chip and I just sort of... Uh, gamed it out in a way, you know, just sort of used our imagination and thought about, you know, thinking about the equipment and the way the phalanx worked and the fact that it was uh, striking overhand with an eight-foot spear rather than yeah. a sword type of scenario. And and from the various uh, research that I had done, uh, knowing about how the phalanx worked, um, 
I sort of used my imagination and uh, just tried to sort of, you know, beam myself back into that era and, and ask myself, you know, what it would be like. But the thing about ancient Sparta, which I'm sure you know and your, your listeners know, is there's very little information about right. ancient Sparta. In fact, I think there's only like 38 words extant written by actual Spartans. I mean, there's right. some information written by people like Xenophon, who was an Athenian and, and who knew Sparta very well. But Sparta was, the culture was a closed culture and they were very mm -hmm. secretive. They didn't want anyone to know any of their tricks of the trade. So a lot of it had to be in research. Hope I'm, I hope I'm not blathering on too no, long. No, 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 please go for it. The, um, this, this is where we live, really. Uh, you know, a lot of that type of research is about reading between the lines, you know, because, for instance, when, when an ancient writer would write about hoplite battle, let's say, let's say it was Thucydides describing the battle of Mantinea or something like that. Thucydides, he knew exactly what it was, and he knew that all of his readers or listeners, they knew what it was, they'd all done it, so he didn't feel the need to really describe it. You know, it was uh, right. the analogy I sort of use sometimes is like if if someone 2000 years from now were reading something that you and I wrote and yeah. we might write a sentence like I went down to the grocery store and got myself, you know, uh, a sandwich. And what we would leave out because we figure everybody knows it is we got in a car and right. not only did we leave out that we got in a car. But we left out what a transmission is, how you have to shift the gears, that there's such yeah. a thing as a clutch, and all that sort of stuff. And so the the reader, 2,000 years from now, would have to imagine themselves back into that thing and somehow, using clues from other places, um, figure, you know, figure out the, the actual details. So a lot of it was reading between the lines, which in a way is a lot of fun. Um, right. And it's a luxury you have as a novelist. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas you are allowed to make it all up. It says novel on the cover, so you can say whatever you want. I mean, yes, but of course you've got to be. If it, you got, you got to stay as true as you possibly can. But well, it's interesting because, like, probably a lot of what I write as a novelist is influenced by movies, right? So sure. maybe I watched Gladiator and I mm -hmm. saw something that they did there. But in fact, in Gladiator, they're making it up themselves, you know? Right. They don't know really how people fought with a Gladius. Maybe you do, um, but I don't know. Yeah, and, and we, we don't have sources. I mean, most of my work is from really detailed sources dating from the 14th century onwards, when people actually started writing. Like, I mean, And some of these sources are so detailed, they even describe the length of the sword relative to the person holding it. And so it's, you know, we have, later on, we have quite a lot of information, but before about 1350, it's, you know, there's maybe a picture in the margin of a Bible or there's yeah. maybe a description of it. Or, or when, when we dig up a battlefield and find, you know, these, these wounded skeletons and we can figure out some of the, the battle injuries that, you know, that yeah. killed these people and the ones they survived from. That gives us some windows. But when actually recreating swordsmanship I the reason I, I don't do any of the early stuff is because we have the sources for the later stuff but not for the sort of yeah. 1300s uh, I mean, really too, what too you're doing guy is sort of like what I'm doing you're you're trying to kind of imagine yourself 
You know, mm. if you ever do try to do something that's ancient swordsmanship, yeah. uh, taking what you know from present or from 1450 and extrapolating back. Right. I, you know, I've, I've played with the, some of the Greek weapons and you, you get a sense of they were really, really fit. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh my God, they That's were That's what I think too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I have friends who reenact um, ancient Greek stuff and they, they reenacted the Battle of Marathon a few years ago, maybe five, six years ago, on the, was it the 2000th anniversary of the Battle of Marathon? Uh, probably 2,500, I think. 2,500, yeah. Um, well, I, I, you know, the fact that I don't know the date exactly tells you how much I don't specialize in that area. Yeah. But yeah, they got like a couple hundred people in really accurate period equipment on the beach and tried to win yeah. the battle. It was it's quite something to watch. Um, let me ask Let me ask you a question, yeah, Guy. Yeah, go um, if I had known you earlier, I would be asking, asking you this question before. <laughs> like sure. the Spartan sword, the Xiphos, mm -hmm. was notoriously short. Yep. Right? So clearly, at least as I imagine it, it was really meant, it was not the primary weapon. The spear was the primary sure. weapon in close combat, not thrown, but, you know, mm -hmm. wielded as a stabbing thing. So I would imagine that the short, the reason it was so short was because when the fighting got down to it, they were so densely packed that they right. couldn't swing a sword or, or do any sort of sword play. Would you agree with that? Um, it's okay. The sword generally for military purposes is a sidearm. It's a backup weapon. Right. And we, and that's, that's true pretty much through most military scenarios, through most of history, as I see it anyway. Uh -huh. um, and if you think about the Roman gladius, it's really short. It's basically a dagger. Okay, I mean, it's... Of course, the Spartan Xiphus um, was a lot shorter than that. Yeah. 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 So, so really, when you're in that close, shield to shield, you're... And, and the, when, when, the, when you get pressed up against your opponent, you really don't need anything longer than about, I don't know, six or nine inches. Because when you're, when you're that close, you just stick it in. And yeah. the shorter it is, the more maneuverable it is. And it's, you're basically in a dagger fight with a shield. Yeah, that's so, sort of what I, what I figured, yeah. Yes. I mean, and generally speaking, like line of battle is not normally done sword against sword. It's normally spears and sort of dagger-like objects. Uh-huh. Um, well, once, once the missiles have been... Shot, you know, yeah, the ar yeah, arrows and pilums and what have you. Yeah. And then, of um, course, the other aspect of that that I've, I'm trying to imagine was that there would be, you know, eight ranks or 16 ranks deep. Right. And if you're in the front rank, somebody's got his shield pressed into your back from behind, right. jamming you forward. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's not much room for wild swordplay, I guess. Yeah. And, and you, can't, you can't pull your arm back very far to get the weapon in again so you have to yeah. be able to maneuver it in front of your body and there's really no space so it, it would make sense to me to have a really really ah. short sword but I mean we do see like Viking swords are a lot longer and they did fight battles but generally speaking shield wall fighting was done with the the shield and the spear and the sword was I think usually mostly single combat ah 
Uh, and of course, you know, there's going to be loads, loads of people listening to this who are going to go, oh, guy doesn't know anything about Vikings. <laughs> He's getting it completely wrong. But this is just my general impression. And of course, there are specific exceptions. But yeah, generally, generally speaking, what we think of as a saw, but like a three-foot blade, it's primarily a sidearm and it's primarily for single combat. Ah. Well, that, that certainly yeah. makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, we're talking about swords. So... You have this YouTube series in which you discuss the warrior archetype and related topics, and you talk about swords quite a bit there. So what does the sword mean to you? Well, it's, uh, I, I mean, I think of it, it's probably the same way you think about a guy. It mm-hmm. is a, it is a, um, a metaphor uh, right. rather than, I think of it rather than, um, as a fighting weapon, like it is a, uh, a kind of a mental, uh, a mental construct, you know, like okay. if you think of a sword, it cleaves things, right? It can mm-hmm. divide, you know, with a, with a stroke, it can divide one thing from another. And yeah. so if you think about um, discrimination or mental acuity or trying to decide what's right and what's wrong, what's honorable, what's not honorable. The sword, a a kind of a mental swordsmanship would be a form of discrimination, you know, and wisdom where you could decide, okay, I'm splitting this, I'm cleaving this thing in half, half I'm going to throw away or I'm going to send to the devil and the other half I'm going to keep as, uh, um, as worthy. And so, I think that's why swords are on so many coats of arms, you know, that, right. that uh, as much as, you know, like a symbol of, of uh, martial prowess or victory in the field as a uh, more, it's as a metaphor of wisdom, I would think. Yeah. I, they're also, I think, symbols of wealth because they've always been very expensive to produce. Yes. So yes. which makes them ex- kind of exclusive and desirable. And actually I had... A philosopher called Damon Young on the show, uh, maybe 20 episodes back. And after we'd done the interview, we were just chatting about this, that and the other. We got onto a discussion about uh, what actually is a sword. How do we define a sword relative? So we know that this thing is a spear. This is a sword. This is a knife. But they're all bladed weapons. How do we how do we like define swordiness? Right. And we were chatting for an hour about this. Wow. And for, fortunately, I accidentally, completely accidentally, I left the recording running. So ah. we, actually, we actually have that discussion um, as, a, as a kind of extra podcast episode. I can send you a link to it if you're interested. Yeah, but give, at me the, the end, give me the gist of it. What, what did you guys yeah, decide? Okay. Um, we didn't come to a formal conclusion, but like my basic distinction from a practical point of view is... A sword is a weapon where, where it makes sense to divide the blade into a defensive part and an offensive part. So you parry with one bit of the blade and you strike with a different bit of the blade. And that distinction becomes necessary somewhere around the 18, 20 inches of blade mark. So by my definition, a gladius would be a dagger, not a sword. Uh-huh. And the Spartan weapon would be... It, you use a Spartan sword like a dagger. You don't use it like a longsword or a rapier, right? But at, at the end of it, I said to David that really my internal definition of a sword is the sword 
separates truth from falsehood and pierces the veil of illusion. Ah, I like that. That, that, <laughs> that, is, that is what the sword is to me. Ah. So yeah, I, and, and again, one of the reasons I thought that you might be amenable to coming on the show is having seen some of your YouTube videos, I was like, okay, you, you and I have very similar thoughts about what swords really mean. Yeah, because we're really talking about an edged weapon or a yeah. stabbing weapon, right? Yeah, and most swords are both. Ah. Um, I mean, the... A samurai uh, sword would just strictly be a, an edged weapon, wouldn't it? No, no, you, it has a sharp point. You can thrust... Oh, they do. Really, you can stab yeah, with yeah, that yeah. too. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Ah. Um, the, the only swords I know of that are single use are an executioner's sword, which is only for cutting. Uh, it doesn't have a point. It has like a square uh-huh. end. Um, and the uh, 17th, 18th century small sword has a triangular section blade that is optimized entirely for thrusting. Mm. And I mean, you can do little tip slashes with it, but you can't, you couldn't like cut off somebody's hand with it. Ah. So there are exceptions, but yeah, most, most swords have both capabilities. And Capafero, for instance, in his book, it, Il Gran Sibulacro del Arte del Uso de la Scherma, um, from 1610, he defines the sword as a weapon with two edges and a point. So he ah. requires two edges. If ah. it doesn't have two edges, it's not a sword. Ah. So, you know, cav- cavalry sabers are out. But, ah, you know. interesting. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah, an easy question. That's a law in the, in, across <laughs> the whole world that the only wars we could fight from now on would be with swords alone. <laughs> things a little different. Yeah, yeah. There wouldn't be people sitting in porter cabins with computers sending drones yeah. into places. and It would bring it. back the idea of honor and the idea of nobility. Yeah, perhaps. Although back when wars were fought that way, there was an awful lot of what we would think of as dishonorable behavior. So mm. I'm, I'm not entirely convinced by the argument that um, an armed society is a polite society. Ah. It's... Uh, Well, the thing Um, about a sword, at least, is that if you're going to kill somebody with it, you got to get so close to them that they can kill you. And that that changes things quite a bit. Uh, Absolutely. And actually, one of Damon's points was the sword is an overtly carried weapon, right? It is a visit. You you can't conceal it. Yes. So it it is for fighting in public, right? In some kind of... So you go sneak up on someone with a sword usually. Yes. Um, and so it's a kind of, and you have to get, again, you have to get close enough to get stabbed. Yeah. I mean, the old 19th century saying was um, a bullet could go anywhere, but a sword is bound to go somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you've heard this story, but I'll, your, mm-hmm. your listeners have too, but I'll repeat it. It was, uh, there's a story, I think it's from, it's from uh, Plutarch, Sayings of the Spartans. And a Spartan king or some Spartan warrior or something was shown a new weapon, which was a kind of a catapult that could shoot a a, a missile 200 yards or something like this. And when he saw it, he began to weep. And he said, alas, valor is no more. Right. And, you know, in the 15th century, the Pope banned the use of crossbows for the same sort of reason. Ah, I didn't know that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I hate the crossbow. <laughs> and, and worse, like there was, um, there was a battle. Oh God, late fifteenth century. Uh, it's in Oakshot's um, 
records of the European sort. I have the book right over there. But two Italian mercenary armies were doing their usual thing of, you know, they basically would jockey around for position. And when one army got the superior position and they had a little bit of a skirmish just, you know, to put on a good show for the people who were paying for things, uh-huh. then then the army in the worst position would surrender and, you know, very few people would actually get killed. And in one of these battles, one side started using flintlocks, uh-huh. right? Or maybe they weren't flintlocks yet, they were wheel But anyway, some kind of, some t- kind of firearm sort of handheld firearm, right? And the other side got absolutely incensed by this and attacked and slaughtered these gun-holding people because, you know, if that sort of thing was allowed to carry on, war would actually get really dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great story. I never heard that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, um, you know... War is primarily, oh, conflict is primarily psychological, right? You you win when your opponent gives up. Yeah. So, yeah. so like, you know, if you think Napoleon marching on Moscow, right? He actually, by by all the laws of, all of the customs of how battles worked in Europe, he, he won. He got there and he captured the capital city. And that should have been that. The Russians should have surrendered. And then Napoleon is emperor of Russia, Right. But the Russians were following a different playbook. And so they basically went, okay, he's coming to Moscow. That's okay. We'll, we'll get out of Moscow. He can have Moscow. So Napoleon arrives. Moscow is basically a ghost town. And then the winter sets in and he doesn't have his supply lines. And the Russians have the countryside where all the food is. And Napoleon is stuck in Moscow and he realizes he has to get back. And so on the ghastly retreat from Moscow, yeah. everything went wrong. But if the Russians had just followed the same set of assumptions, Napoleon had won and they should have surrendered. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's so like the wars that the United States and England are fighting, like in Iraq and Afghanistan right. and other areas, Vietnam, where the other side just won't play by the rules. Right, exactly. Yeah, like it's, it's famously said that, you know, in, in Vietnam, America won all the battles. Right? Yes. But, but, but still, war. right, because they were the the story in their opponent's head wasn't changing the way it was supposed yeah. to. Yeah. Um, or flying airplanes into into skyscrapers, you know, into the World Trade right. Center. That's another changing yeah. of the rules. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, we we should talk about your new book, of course. Um, Man at Arms, and you have St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians as the MacGuffin. Okay, which is, it's, it's, a, it's a genius stroke. <laughs> if I was wearing a hat, I'd take it off to you for that. that that's a, um, it's a sort of fascinating plot device. But what made you, what prompted that choice? Um, first of all, I'm really, I got to take my hat off to you for knowing what a MacGuffin is. And I, and I, I'm not, I hope you that your, uh, our, our listeners today know what it is. We can get into that a little bit, but sure. this, the sort of the story of this was, um, how it evolved was, uh, my niece was getting married a few years ago and she asked me to be the officiant. Okay. So 
actually, my brother had already married them, but I was going to do the public version of it. Right. So I started, I opened the Book of Common Prayer, and I started looking for, you know, pithy quotes that I could use, you know. And so I found a few, like, you know, uh, um, famous ones of uh, love beareth all things, believeth all things, endureth all mm-hmm. things, and faith, hope, and charity, etc. And I realized that all of the I picked, which I got about four or five, all came from the same source. They all came from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, from that book in the New Testament known as First Corinthians. And uh, so, you know, when you're a novelist or a screenwriter, you're always looking for some kind of hook you can ha- hang a story on. And I just thought, right. what if this was a this was a real letter? You know, Paul really sent it to the, the you know the early Christian community in Corinth, and if he did send it, the Romans would want to stop it in any way possible because this new religion, this crazy new religion called Christianity, which wasn't called Christianity then, but that was a, any far-sighted Roman could see this was a real threat to the empire. Hmm. So um, I just thought, well, how about a story where the Romans try to stop this letter from getting through? And, you know, we can have some interesting characters in there and some chases and stuff like that. And uh, so the definition of of a MacGuffin, just to carry this through, really comes from Alfred Hitchcock. And the MacGuffin, as I define it, is the item that the villain wants. For instance, in Casablanca, the movie, the letters of transit were the MacGuffin, if you remember that. The letters that would get somebody a get-out-of-jail-free card from Casablanca. You could escape to Lisbon. Um, in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Ark of the Covenant is the MacGuffin. That's yep. the thing the Nazis want, you know? So in this case, the bad guys are the story. In my book, A Man at Arms, the Romans are the bad guys, and what they want is this letter. So that was sort of how that evolved as a the building blocks of a story. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminded me a little bit of um, Star Wars. With yeah, it is R2D2. a lot like Star Wars. R2D2 has that message exactly. and, and, the, and the secret map of the Death Star. Yes. Um, so everyone, yeah, everyone wants was, R2D2. He was the MacGuffin in he Star was, Wars. He was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And, and you, um, you take one of your characters from one of your other historical novels and basically give him his own book. Yeah. Um, it's the, the central character is... is uh, uh, the solitary mercenary Telamon of Arcadia, mm-hmm. who I think of kind of like a samurai, like a Ronin samurai, um, a guy who is uh, a, a lone one-man killing machine who fights only for himself, like like a gunslinger, like a Clint Eastwood type of guy, or like a samurai in the in the movie Seven Samurai or anything else. Somebody who is up for hire. You want him? You want to buy his sword? You buy it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I thought that uh, he's a character I really love from a couple of other books that he was in. Um, and I wanted to do a book that was finally just about him alone. And sort of because mm-hmm. I, I was sort of fascinated by, I, I've always been fascinated by that kind of solitary warrior character. And you must be too, Guy, in a way, to be into swords, because it's really, that's what this is, that's kind of what it's about. I mean, I don't think you're interested in a thousand guys with swords, right? You want the one guy. 
like you know Musashi Miyamoto or somebody like that, right? Yeah, and and for me, the my my primary interest is martial arts, and swords are the kind of subset of martial arts that I am like uh-huh. fixated on. And the thing is, you get the most interesting, so the most technically interesting martial arts practice when it is two experts facing off against each other one-on-one in a pre-arranged situation. So it's not self-defense, it's dueling. That's where you get the possibility of like the highest and most sophisticated expression of the art. And as soon as you add surprise, things get, have to get a lot simpler. Everything you train has to be super simple. And when you have like line of battle stuff, the actual techniques are super simple and it's all about you know unit cohesion and formation and battle tactics rather right. than the individual skills of the individual soldier and that you know it just doesn't doesn't attract my interest in the same way as as you know two lone duelists you know battling it out that that's, yeah i i'm with you i mean that's where the drama right. comes in and that's where honor and nobility comes in you know there's right there's, it, i mean it's like sport there's nothing greater than like boxing you know mm-hmm. than two evenly matched antagonists right. that can respect each other you know and and uh it's great to watch everybody wants to watch it and everybody wants to be it yeah and it's the evenly matched thing is really important yeah so you know you can't Two people, say, let's say in 15th century Italy, two people of different social statuses can't have a proper duel. Two people of, um, let's say, you know, a warrior age 25 and a sort of retired lord age like 75, they can't have a duel either because it's not an equal fight. There has to be at least the, the possibility for the fight to be equal for it to be a proper duel. Yes, and that, that, that's 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 written into the dueling laws of the time, and yeah, all of the sources we have, like there was there was plenty of like battlefield fighting going on in the 15th century and and after that. I mean, it's not like they people stopped fighting battles, but the books that were written about how to fight with swords are almost exclusively concerned with one on one, and I think this is why it's 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 that sense of. I don't know, honor and prestige and prowess and, you know, how better to display your prowess than by fighting one-on-one. Leave luck out of it as far as possible. And it's that, it's that single combat situation that gives you that absolute focus on, okay, right now, today, which one of us is better? Yes. Yeah. You know, and it's, I mean, one of the things that was really interesting to me, I'm sure all of your listeners are totally familiar with this, Ridley Scott's movie, The Duelists. Oh, great you know, film. Where, yeah, I love that film. That they couldn't fight each other unless they were the same rank. That's right. You yeah. know, that was really interesting, too. Like when Keith Carradine's character wanted to get out of fighting the Harvey Keitel character, one of the things was, well, be a different rank than he is. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, and that's actually based on like an actual historical pair of characters. Ah. And so, some of their letters actually survive. Really? Was and, it yeah, the same I, names? That, um, that... I believe so. I, I haven't looked into this for a long time, but I recall pretty clearly, I, I will check it and put a note in the show notes in case I'm making this up, but I'm 99% sure 
that some of those letters survive and they are like incredibly polite. Like, many congratulations on your recent promotion to Colonel, a promotion as delayed as it was deserved. Of course, this means, this means that we are now of equal rank and we may resume our affair. I will see you at such and such and such and such and such. But it's like, like from, from the bits of the letters that I've read, they seem to really like each other. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, which, I, it was a great movie. I, now that we're yeah. talking about it, I've got it. I've got to watch it again. I've got to put it on my yeah. mind. And you know, the opening duel where Harvey, Harvey Keitel, who is a, an experienced cavalry soldier, right, is fighting with small swords with this young man who is not an experienced anything, but might have had some fencing lessons. And Harvey Keitel just, like, slaughters him, right? It, and it's done so... In, it, it struck me just, like, if, if an experienced warrior with an unfamiliar weapon is up against an inexperienced person in their first proper fight even if that person has some familiarity with the weapons the experienced warrior will just slaughter them mm. and that's, that's it just struck me as like it's one of those things it's not maybe literally true but it, it's it's profoundly should we say morally true ah makes sense yeah yeah um okay now i do have to ask you a question we were talking about single combat and i did some preparation for this interview of course and found out that you wrote the screenplays for Steven Seagal's Above the Law and, <laughs> and Dolph Lundgren's Joshua Tree. Uh, I don't know whether you actually got to spend any time on set with these with these people, but... Um, I did, okay. yes. You did. Okay, excellent. That, that's going to help. So if, those, if Steven Seagal and Dolph Lundgren had an unarmed stand-up fight, who would you put your money on? <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, um, let me say this. Dolph Lundgren is a real physical specimen. You yeah. know? He's a big guy and he's fit and he's, he's strong and he's, an, he's a real athlete. Um, that said, Steven Seagal is also a big guy. You know, I think they're mm -hmm. probably each six, three, six, four minimum. And uh, but I would have to put my money on Steven Seagal, at least if he was in shape, just because of the skill that he has with Aikido and all that sort of thing. And I don't think I maybe mean, I'm no expert, but I don't know very many people that could stand up to somebody at his level of skill. Really? OK, yeah. I was not expecting that. Uh, wow. So so when because, you know, Dolph Lundgren is a big, very strong guy and he can punch and kick like. Yeah, he's he's a trained. I mean, I could be completely karate. wrong, but uh, okay. well, what we should do? We should arrange it. We should we should arrange it. We should we should get the, those two to have a grudge match and and, and see if you're right. Because that would be rude. so. You were actually on set with Steven Seagal and Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was just one of three writers on Above the Law. I don't want to take credit for anything like that. Okay, but I will say of, of both of those guys, Steven Seagal and Dolph Lundgren, they're both very smart guys. They mm -hmm. are by no means dumb actors or anything like that. They're multi-talented, sure. multi-faceted individuals um, with uh, real interesting stories, life stories behind them. Okay. Did you get to see any of the fight scenes? Um, you know, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I don't think I did, actually. I wasn't okay. in Chicago where they shot Above the Law. I wasn't there for the actual shooting. I was there for the... 
for the other one with Dolph Lundgren, there wasn't that much, you know, fist fighting in that one or anything like that. Okay. Car chases and things like that. <laughs> Shootouts. But, uh, yeah, no, I don't have any inside stories to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, never mind. But, okay, so Steven Seagal, Dolph Lundgren. I, I would be very interested to, to know what the listeners think. Ah, um, yeah. Because if if you if you watch the move, yeah, obviously Steven Seagal is a very high level Aikido guy, um, and Dolph Lundgren can really hit like a truck. I mean, you see him in like Rocky Four, where he's he's the the bad Russian dude, and you know when he when he kills um, uh, what's his name uh, Apollo Creed with a punch to the head, like you, ah. you can you can believe that 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 or <laughs> the mechanics behind it are just spot on and, and there's a ridiculous amount of muscle mass there so yeah yeah okay I, th- I really think I really think we have to arrange with Mr. Segal and Mr. <laughs> gentlemen if you're listening to this in the unlikely event that you're listening to this podcast then please do get in touch and I'll happily <laughs> happily tr- arrange a space for you guys to fight each other <laughs> okay um, alright now there's um, a question that I ask most of my guests and that is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Do you mean a, a creative idea, like for a story, or just an idea in your life? How you interpret the question is as interesting as the answer. Ah. You know, I, you actually sent me this ahead of time. I didn't even think mm-hmm. about it. Uh, um, that I didn't act. Let me ask you this, Guy. Okay. Why, why ask it in the negative of an idea you didn't act upon. What's what's your thinking behind that? Okay. Most people I know um, have like something they they want to have done but haven't done yet. Right? Uh, Maybe it's write a book. Not in your case, uh, obviously you've written millions of books. Um, or they what they really want to do is they want to visit Machu Picchu or they really want to learn to read ancient Greek so they can work with ancient Greek. So most people have have something like that. And the reason I put it that way is because um, it it gets them to talk about the things that are really important to them that they maybe haven't kind of quite... Oh, I see. That's that's a good question. Yeah. I I do have an answer for you. Go on then. Um, the women in my life mm-hmm. over the years, I wish I had appreciated them more in the okay. moment. In the, in the moment. Um, and uh, um, even the current lady in my life who will be the, 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 my lady forever, yeah. uh, I, I wish sometimes I take things for granted that I shouldn't take for granted, you know? And when I look back, I think, wow, I really should have paid much more attention to that and really been much more appreciative of it. Huh. That's a, that's a really interesting answer. Um, okay. I'm not sure how to follow up on that without going into, (laughs) without basically prying, but Uh, well, uh, let me, let me expand it a little bit. I would say it's also true of, of other experiences in my life. You know, we were talking, mm-hmm. you were talking before about, you know, various jobs that I, that I work, yeah. these kind of crazy jobs, you know? And at, at the time, um, 
when I was in those situations, I was just sort of trying to keep above water. Yeah. But I wish I had paid more attention then. I wish I had appreciated things more. Um, you know, uh, I just wish I had been more present for it. It's sort of, you know, I'm getting old enough that I, I, I think, you know, the end of life is out there, you know? Sure. And I would sort of think, well, what am I, what will I think back? You know, if I look back, what mm -hmm. will I think? And I, I think that's what I'll say to myself. Oh, I wish I had paid more attention to it um, and appreciated it more. Even just things like, uh, you know, driving a, a, a tractor trailer at, you know, before dawn, you're out on the road and mm -hmm. the sun comes up and, you know, there's nobody on the road but you. And what a, it's just a great feeling, you know. Mm -hmm. And I wish I had... You know, appreciated more. Whereas at the time, I was just thinking, "Oh shit!" You know, I got, I'm late. I got, I'm going to be get lost in a few minutes. You know, that kind of thing. So, so for all of life, I wish I had been more present in in the moment. Wow. Okay. Well, that, that's that's a good sort of warning to, or or reminder to the listeners that I mean, isn't know. the discipline of swords really about that in a way that hundred percent. You've got to be 100% present in the moment. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to lose your head. Yeah, and, and it's the stories that distract us. When we start, instead of paying attention to what's right in front of us, we start thinking about what's going to happen two moves from now or what has just happened that we didn't want to happen one move ago. And, and you know, those, those are always stories and they're not real. Yeah. And if we can... If we can get rid of the story running in our head like okay i'm going to do this they're going to do that and then i'm going to do this other thing as soon as we are projecting into the future we start to believe our own stories and then when the opponent does the wrong thing from our perspective we get surprised yeah yeah and and if you're properly present and in the moment it's it, things might happen that you know things might still go wrong but it's impossible to be surprised because you have no expectations. Ah. Let me um, ask you a question. Can I ask you a yeah, question? Yeah, of course. I mean, my understanding of from samurai movies mm -hmm. of the sort of kind of the Zen state of mind, of no mind and all that, as it applies to, say, you know, a duel, a sword duel, mm -hmm. is that, now tell me if I'm wrong or not, but sort of the concept, like, you know, the scene, are you, you're familiar with the movie Seven Samurai, right? Yes, of course. You know that there's that great opening moment when they're um, they're recruiting the samurai, and the uh, leader is kind of sitting in this sort of hotel or whatever you would call it there, yeah. an inn, I guess. And yeah. and somebody, uh, two candidates are going to come in through one after the other, come in through the door, and he orders the young guy Katsushiro, the young samurai, to stand behind and behind the door, hiding, yeah. to beat this guy over the head when he comes in, right? Yeah. And and the whole sort of concept is, tell me if this is true, the whole sort of concept of the, the, uh, the state of mind that a samurai is trying to get to is that it's, he's so sort of open to the moment and not having that story that he senses that before it happens, senses that ambush. And like, if you remember the first samurai that comes in, he starts to walk through the door and then he stops and he bursts out laughing. And... Yeah. And the and the and the lead samurai says, "Oh, come on in, come on in. You passed the test, you know." Yeah. Uh, 
Is, is that true, that sort of state of mind? Do you try to get to that in swordsmanship? Okay, in Japanese martial arts, there is quite... Okay, in some Japanese martial arts, they have those sort of meditation like um, Mikyo Buddhism or Zen Buddhism where they they actively pursue that sort of that state of no mind and they articulate it in in the way that you've expressed so yeah that's uh i say that's a fair description of how some martial arts in japan treat these things in european martial arts where, where i specialize there is literally no discussion of that at all mm. but from descriptions of feats of arms it's pretty clear that many people are operating in that sort of headspace. Ah. And it's also, um, how's the best way to put it? Right. It was normal before a judicial duel or before a battle for the warriors to pray. Ah. Right. And which is a kind of chant of familiar words often in a in a very specific language that is not your native tongue that puts you into that particular headspace where i mean ideally um you from a european perspective if you trust in the lord uh-huh. then then if you die it doesn't matter because you're going straight to heaven and if the it is god's will that you're going to win then you will and it takes away that um, that sort of storytelling focus on the ending, mm-hmm. right? How is this going to turn out? Uh-huh. And so I would say it engenders a similar headspace. Ah. Um, but of course, you know, modern practice of historical martial arts is largely separated from any kind of religious practice. So, I mean, I teach meditation to my students so they can get into that sort of headspace and they can be aware of the stories as they arise. Um, and I have, you know, my own tricks for avoiding storytelling when I'm fencing. I mean, one thing I do is I sing a little song. Really? I literally, yeah, absolutely. So, so the storytelling part of my brain wants to handle language. And so I'm singing a little song about, I'm going to control the weapon of strike. And it has a little tune to it. And it's just slightly under my breath. And when we get really close, it freaks the hell out of my opponent. <laughs> because they're like what the hell is guy doing why is he saying <laughs> right but it it means that i have to keep my breathing under control which keeps stress levels down it keeps the storytelling bit of my brain active on something that has nothing to do with the fencing ah very smart yeah huh? right and it's just really easy to do and to get into and i would imagine but i have no evidence for this i would imagine that like medieval knights, for instance, would often have, shall we say, I don't know, the Ave Maria or the Pater Nostra or something running around uh-huh. in their head while they are doing their thing for, for similar purposes. Ah, very interesting. You know, it's <laughs> sort of like the uh, when the Spartans or the ancient Greeks would march, you know, they, mm-hmm. they would sing the paean, you know, the, the, right. the, the song and for the same reason, to keep breathing, to yeah. keep stories out of their head, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you know, as a, I don't know if the Marines call them this, but you have like in the Navy at least they're called Jodies. 
mm. where where you have these, you know, I don't know, but I've been told. Right, yeah, where, yeah, definitely, yeah. 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 <laughs> for, again, same reason. And, you know, war cries. <laughs> so true, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it just keeps that bit of your brain going so uh, that you can, yeah. you can perform a, yeah. a, yeah, without without being distracted by the things that you don't want to be thinking about yeah. or you shouldn't be thinking about. Brilliant. Well, Steve, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, I hope we'll yes. see you back here again soon. This has been great, Guy. Thanks very much. I'll, please invite me back anytime. It's great talking <laughs> with you. And uh, hope we haven't exhausted everything that I have to say. Uh, no, 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 no. We, we, have, we have scratched the surface. All right. Thanks, Steve. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Steve Pressfield. Go to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes and to get your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. And of course, if you're looking for the new book, it's at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their very kind support of the show. I can't tell you what a difference it makes getting up in the morning and doing this work, knowing that there are people out there who actually really care about it. It makes the whole thing literally worthwhile. So if you would like to join us there, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And patrons basically get everything I do earlier than everyone else and Wherever possible, they also get it for free. So, so if you'd like to become part of the inner ring, that's the place to do it. It's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Yale Nathan. She is a graphics artist best known for Midnight Radio, uh, which she produced with Ehud Lavsky. And she's also done, for example, uh, covers for Star Wars comics and um, we talk about um, the <laughs> way she actually ended up having to invent an entire spaceship for Star Wars forsooth and I came across Yale's work when I saw her illustrations of women with swords and sometimes women with swords and strange animals on Twitter and thought oh my goodness she is definitely one of us so I got in touch and you can enjoy our conversation next week. So subscribe to the show so you won't miss an episode. And if you have a minute, please do rate it and review it. And most importantly, please do pass it along to any friends you have you think might enjoy it. So if you have enjoyed a particular episode, letting a friend know that you thought of that they particularly would enjoy it, it's a much better recommendation than just a sort of generic share on Twitter or Facebook or wherever else. Not that I'm dissing the generic shares. I mean, please carry on doing that too. That's also really helpful, but nothing beats a personal recommendation. So if you can think of someone who you think might, have, might enjoy this episode with Steve, then please do email them a link so they can go get it. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week.